welcome to Detroit Today. I'm 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Remember, if you listen to this show, if you love this show and listen every day and really get something out of the conversation and interaction that we have here on Detroit Today, but you're one of the many people who has never contributed to WDET, now is a great time to make your first contribution. Like many other businesses and institutions, WDET, of course, has been hit really hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have a pretty significant financial gap to make up by the end of our fiscal year on September 30th. It's your contributions that will make up for that gap and keep shows like Detroit Today and Culture Shift and Essential Music all on the air and all intact. So now is the time to secure all of that local programming that you rely on with your gift at WDET.org. And as always, thank you very much to everyone who has contributed. Up first today, it is August. And for many of us, that has historically meant a shift toward all things back to school. But this year, in this unprecedented time, August has been a looming deadline for schools and administrators to try to figure out a plan for our young people and for their parents. This hour, we are going to delve into what the school year ahead could look like for students across the country and, of course, right here in Metro Detroit. Later, we're going to talk with Elizabeth Moji, who's the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, about what the picture looks like for students locally. And then Kanika Littleton, who is the director of the Michigan Alliance for Families, will weigh in on how students with autism or other special needs and their parents are being affected by the pandemic. But first, we begin with Joseph Allen, who is Assistant Professor of Exposure Assessment Science at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. Allen recently co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post titled, We Can and Must Reopen Schools. Here's how. He joins us now to talk about why he thinks we have got to get students back into schools and classrooms and how we could do that safely. Professor Allen, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me on. So in your piece in the Washington Post, you write, quote, airborne transmission of the novel coronavirus is happening. This is not to be feared. It just requires adding some new strategies to our arsenal in addition to hand washing, distancing and other measures to keep community spread to a minimum. So what do those strategies look like when you talk about hundreds of children and adults all in one building for six and a half, seven hours a day? Yeah, so it's a really good uh, question. I'm happy to answer it. Maybe I'll start higher level uh, that there are two conditions precedent, meaning two things have to happen before kids go back to school. The first is we have to know when it's okay to send them back, and that means we have to look at metrics of community spread. Can't go back when we have uncontrolled cases in the community. Second part is what needs to be done in the school building, and there we need to implement these robust, robust risk reduction strategies. And in this op-ed, I make the case that there are strategies that can be deployed. I should say my team released a report in June that is a 60-page report on all of these risk reduction strategies. The op-ed last week 
was focused on airborne transmission and a recognition that we are short on time and resources. So what can you do to address this? And we use the acronym just real quick, School SMART, where SMART is stay home when sick, to the S. Mm -hmm. Of course, that captures symptomatic students, but not asymptomatic. M, mask up. Universal mask wearing is a must. I'd like to talk more about the recent outbreaks and not wearing masks is a major problem. A, an air cleaner in every classroom. A portable air cleaner or portable air purifier can provide several air changes per hour of clean air. Mm. R, refresh that indoor air. We must improve the ventilation in our schools. And T, temporary classrooms. We need to reimagine our spaces. Can we get kids outside more? Can we have classes uh, uh, in open spaces? Think about what we did for healthcare when we had this surge, or near, for example, New York City. The Javits Convention Center was turned into a hospital. There were field tents in Central Park. And so, you know, we don't have to uh, think or be so stagnant in our ideas of what school has to be. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're going to have to get real creative here uh, and do everything we can to minimize risk. And that might mean reimagining what a school day even looks like or where that has to take place. Certainly, we cannot go back to schools as usual. So just listening to you talk about the things that you think need to be in place in order for children to go back to school and then thinking about the things that I've read about and heard about in terms of the preparation that schools and school districts are undertaking in advance of reopening schools. There's a big gap there. You're talking about things that in some cases I haven't heard of any schools actually doing. Yeah. So a couple of things we've chronically underinvested in our school buildings for decades uh, and we're paying the price for that right now. And so there are many districts that are employing these strategies or what I call healthy building control strategies, in addition to the basics that we know now, mask wearing, hand washing, distancing as best you can. But in my thing about the healthy building strategies, I'm talking about higher ventilation rates and better filtration. So there are definitely districts that are doing that. Quite concerning, though, are many of these schools that are opening, take Georgia, Schools that are opening with a high number of cases in the community, so that that's, they shouldn't be opening under that circumstance. And if you, I've read their plans, they don't mention ventilation or filtration. Mm. So they're they're violating the violating is a strong word, but they're you know we have metrics for when to open and what needs to be done in a school, and they're not doing either. And then when they have cases, well, that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So we have to put in these strategies. I also recognize that you know I'm not saying we need to put in. Uh, you know, overhaul entire mechanical systems in schools. This can't be done in this in this short time frame because of this underinvestment we've had in our schools for so long. This ultimately informs the strategies I mentioned in School Smart, which is these are things that can be done quickly. For example, a portable air cleaner in every classroom. Now, there's an expense with those, but my feeling is we need to prioritize reopening schools at a national level. We are giving trillions of dollars of stimulus. We're re reopening other parts of the economy, but we haven't really given the same focus or attention to schools. And so do I think every classroom could have a portable air cleaner in it? Yes, I do. Hmm. Uh, and when you do that, when you combine that with mask wearing, and these portable air cleaners can get four to five air changes per hour of clean air, right? So that means every you know, 12 to 15 minutes, the full volume of the room, the classroom is cleaned through a HEPA filter. Mm. Uh, could we do that nationally? Yeah, we, we could do that. Um, it's been quite discouraging, really, from a public health standpoint as a parent myself to see that we're just starting to have these conversations and it's August 
And we should have been talking about this the second schools closed back in March, mm. and it just hasn't been a national priority. It, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate as to uh, light of a word. I mean, our, our gross incompetence uh, uh, on our federal government's part, going back to January, really, but uh, it really shows with schools that we're reopening other sectors of the economy and we can't prioritize getting kids back uh, into the classroom. Mm. I'm talking with Joseph Allen, Assistant Professor of Exposure Assessment Science at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, also author, co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. He recently co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post titled, We Can and Must Reopen Schools. Here's how. We're talking about the things that he says should be in place in order to send school kids back to school in just a few weeks here. Uh, we're also talking about how unprepared we are as a nation for uh, those things, uh, doing those things that would make it safe for kids to go back to school. We'd love to hear from you during this conversation. Uh, would you feel comfortable sending your kids to school uh, at a temporary classroom or at a convention center? Would you be comfortable sending your kids to school if there were air purifiers in each classroom, things that would exchange the air in the room pretty frequently to make sure that there isn't the chance of spreading the coronavirus through airborne means. What are you planning to do to keep your kids safe if you are sending them back to school? If you aren't sending them back, what would make you more comfortable to be able to do that. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I especially want to hear from folks who are just opting out of all of this in a few weeks, people who've just decided that schools aren't ready, that the nation is not ready and that the risk is just too high to send your children back to school. And I'd also love to hear from folks in Gross Point, where last week they announced that they are canceling in-person schools and going online only. We saw a pretty sizable protest among parents out there this weekend saying that they really would like their kids to go back to school. If you were part of those protests, we'd love to hear from you. If you think the protesters were wrong and that Gross Point made the right decision, we'd love to hear from you as well. As always, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get to listeners, uh, Professor Allen, I, I want to ask you, uh, about the the rule following that would have to attend all of this, even if you prepared the physical plants of the schools, and even if you had all kinds of protocols that you say are going to be in place, how do you ensure that little kids or even adolescents go along with those rules in sufficient compliance in order to stop the kinds of super spreader? Uh, events that that schools could become. Yeah, this is going to be the most challenging part of this, and I'm sure you have many teachers listening in, and they'll know that uh, firsthand uh, for sure. 
And one of the things we recommend in our full-length report is the the critical importance of establishing a culture of health, safety, and shared responsibility with messaging that, quite honestly, should be starting right now if it hasn't already in terms of what the expectations are getting students and parents used to um, or comfortable with the the changing role. You know, they can't walk into school on day one and see it totally different. Uh, They need to be prepared starting right now. you know, there are some things that can be done. You know, I think about uh, this is a corollary to construction safety, which is, of course, different. But, you know, every day on a construction site, you know how they start the day? They have a safety meeting. Hmm. And I think we should be starting schools every day with that safety meeting from the principals, from the teachers. It's reinforced. I see the, the real um, uh, massive improvements we've made in anti-bullying over the past couple decades where it's now cultural uh, in, 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 and shared responsibility to stop bullying within schools because of the great uh, gains that teachers and administrators have made and bringing in parents and, te- and kids to be part of that solution. So kids can do this. They are resilient. It just has to be reinforced. And the reinforcement has to come from an understanding of knowledge of how we're exposed to this and why it's so critically important, not just to protect themselves, but in protecting their community, protecting their friends, protecting their loved ones and parents. And mm-hmm. they're all going to have to uh, act accordingly to keep everyone else safe. It's not just about them. This is about keeping uh, their loved ones and their friends safe in school, their teachers and, and parents when they go home. So it's going to be the, the hardest part, um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's critical that this uh, culture of health, safety, and shared responsibility becomes part of that conversation from right now and then starting at day one and continuing every day while we're in this pandemic. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number for the phones here at Detroit Today. Uh, I want to read some Twitter comments before we get to phones. Jerry on Twitter says she is not okay with schools reopening in the fall. Schools are ecosystems extending beyond the student and teacher. You're not just asking teachers who signed up for this. Uh, You're also asking bus drivers, uh, crossing guards, librarians, lunch staff, admins, counselors, social workers, uh, other people to risk exposure. Emily on Twitter says, of course it isn't okay to send schools, send kids back to school next month, and the economy, jobs, and other things are not worth losing additional lives. Uh, Green Doctor on Twitter says, where are the public available, li- publicly available links to the plans that these administrators and experts have for running uh, an experiment with Michigan's children and teachers' health and public safety. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Lauren in Sterling Heights. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, um, I'm a parent. I have a, a child entering kindergarten and one entering second grade this year. Um, I don't feel safe sending my children back to school. If I did, I would make them wear face masks and face shields, which I doubt that they would keep on all day because they're kids. And um, and I see, like, these other parents walking around with their face masks that are, like, only half over their mouth. And they're in the grocery store with other adults. Like, they're going to be teaching their kids to do the same thing. So I don't think it's fair to put them back in school to risk exposing other people, their teachers. Their teachers are going to end up spending the majority of the day teaching them how to wash hands and not pick their noses mm. and how to, you know, all the, do all the stuff that kids do. I don't feel safe, um, and I wish to see uh, school districts would expand upon what their plan is for virtual learning. Because I don't, I also don't want my children sitting in front of a screen for eight hours a day, 
Yeah. So, Lauren, what are you planning to do? Like, what 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 is your what is your idea of what life looks like three weeks from now? Actually, we I think we just lost Lauren uh, on that line. But but Lauren, I do appreciate the call and the concerns, uh, Professor Allen. I think there's gonna be a lot of people who have that same reaction to the idea of sending their kids off to school in a few weeks. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. I'm a parent of three kids. Uh, this whole thing is anxiety-inducing. It's really hard to keep tabs on the science. Uh, I do this for a living, and I'm, you know, it's 4 a.m. until I go to sleep every night uh, doing this to keep tabs on it. I do want to talk about two other things that are related here, and that's you know uh, this conversation of risk and risks of being out of school and also risks in the classroom. So first, keeping kids out of school is not cost-free. There are massive costs. In fact, we have virtual dropouts. I've heard from many teachers that I hadn't heard from their students since March, and they're concerned. In Boston, 10,000 high school students, where I am, didn't check in in the month of May. In Philadelphia, 50% of elementary school kids made daily contact. We know kids who are at home are more sedentary, less social. 30 million kids in this country rely on schools for food. UNICEF says that kids who are at home are more likely to suffer from abuse, neglect, exploitation, and violence. Mm. Uh, And so this is real. These are real costs. Now, I think about the risks inside the classroom. So first, we have to be sure, like I said, the conditions precedent, the community spread is under control, and these risk reduction strategies are in place. And we get some benefits. And and by the way, those strategies are to protect adults and kids. I want to be very clear. In terms of kids specifically, to to address uh, the, the caller's comment about her own kids' risk. Kids are less likely to catch this than adults. Mm -hmm. This virus hasn't spared us in many ways, but that is one it has, thankfully. Also, if they do get it, they're less likely to suffer from the severe consequences that uh, plague adults, in particular older adults. And I'll point listeners to an article or study that just came out, followed uh, many hundreds of thousands of uh, people, there's a seroprevalence study, meaning looking back and, and looking at the blood and see how it has been exposed to this virus. And it turns out that the risks for kids were uh, estimated at three in 100,000, not estimated measures, I should say. So three in 100,000 uh, infection fatality rate. So fortunately, that's quite low. In fact, a way to think about that, we talk about is 10 to the minus five risk, one, at one over 100,000. So in my field, we talk about 10 to the minus five risk. Mm-hmm. That's actually the risk we regulate environmental hazards to. I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean to compare that to environmental hazards. I'm just trying to give listeners a sense of how we think about risk in, in environmental exposure context. So the kids are less likely to catch it. If they get it, they're less likely to suffer. What you see is that an age group goes up. It goes from 1 in 100,000 roughly to when you're over 30 to 50, it's 1 in 10,000. And then when you're older, it goes to 1 in 1,000. And those over 70, it's you know 5 per hundred percent level risk, which we've seen, right? And the majority of deaths or over 40% of deaths in the state where I am, Massachusetts, are those who are older and we're doing a terrible job of protecting them. So in terms of the kids' risk, uh, it is quite low. Uh, it's not negligible. There's, there's no such thing as zero risk in anything we do. But uh, fortunately, this virus has... Um, but I think the, rare, kids the fear for parents is also that if my kid goes to school and is exposed to other kids who may be, again, asymptomatic carriers, and then they come home, then all the adults in my household are, are at risk as well. I mean, it's, it's not, schools aren't just about the kids and the kids who are there. It's about where they go when they leave. Yeah, I agree. And this is where this larger question of, of risk, you know, we talk about risks of not being in school, the risks of 
catching it in the classroom, the risks that vary by age, and also the risk of community spread. This is why it's key to have that first condition present of low community spread so that the risks of someone even introducing it into the school are low. If you open up schools with high community spread, you will have cases in that school. I mean, we saw this. We see this everywhere. Mm. Uh, we just saw it in Georgia, right? Um, so the idea there is to minimize the probability that someone comes in the classroom or the school in the first place. And then if they are in there, you want these healthy building strategies and mask wearing and social behavioral hand washing uh, interventions in place to minimize the likelihood that they will get it. Um, and that is to help control the community spread and even transmission uh, back home into the house. Mm. You know, the the other side of this is that, you know, many people are forced to work. There are many essential workers. So mm. the idea that we're just going to keep kids home for, for some people that might work and be possible but for others, it's not necessarily the case that that will reduce their contacts or exposure. Many parents are talking about child care services if schools are closed, uh, combining with other families. So it's not that you know if you keep a kid in a bubble, sure, in their house, then you've eliminated that risk, absolutely. But that doesn't work for the vast, vast majority of kids. And of course, it comes with those other massive costs. Sure. So it's not, none of this is straightforward or easy, and I think everyone appreciates that, but it's, uh, it's worth a larger conversation of exposure and risk and risk reduction. Yeah. Uh, Karen on Twitter says, University of Detroit Jesuit High School, my alma mater, and where my son attends school, uh, has multiple options, including in-person education. So do many private schools around Metro Detroit. I will say again, uh, I, I'm an alum of that school, and I have a son in, enrolled there, and they have done a pretty remarkable job of at least planning for a reasonable approach to the fall. I guess we'll have to wait and see, though, whether that actually pans out. Let's go to Janice in Chicago. Janice, welcome to the show. Hi there. How are hey. you? Good. So I'm actually driving through the area, and I can't help but, um, so first of all, the gentleman that was just on, and while we certainly appreciate all the commentaries, it was very good for you to point out that, you know, it's not just we're all concerned about getting kids back into school um, as a teacher and as a mom. Um, I'm certainly was concerned about getting my son into school. Um, he's now raised and out of school for a long while. But that being said, I love kids. I love being in my classroom. But we cannot teach from a coffin. And so, so many parents and so many administrators and other people and even um, Trump is concerned about getting kids back into school. And while that's all well and good, we are not thinking about the people that are the educators. And while a student may not have as large um, a chance of getting uh, the coronavirus, unfortunately, many of the teachers that have been teaching for 15, 20, 25 years or more um, and that are still, that's their lifeline of, of, of working and, and making a living for themselves, are at that age particular where they're more likely to contract that. Mm. And some people are even taking care of other individuals, they're, whether they're handicapped or whether they're actually uh, caring for people that have compromised situations. Mm. Uh, we're not taking into consideration the teachers. And, and so, as a teacher, so we Janice, so often hear... Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are you going to do in a few weeks? I assume school well, starts in Chicago. Uh, the same Chicago time public here. schools have been smart enough to decide not to go back. That's right. And we'll be teaching right. remotely. Um, the district that I'm teaching in um, is supposedly going to have a meeting in the next couple of days um, to decide what their options are. Uh, they had a meeting about a week ago, and literally they were on in a meeting um, 
from 5 in the evening until 11 at night, wow. coming to no decision other than decide to spend $230,000 on tents, mm. uh, which I might point out are only going to be good for so long. Tents for, um, and for a lot of parents, yeah. yeah, a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the parents want kids to go back to school, and we totally understand that, but we're no no place is ready to go back to school yet, and there's a very uh, the area that I teach in is a very affluent community, much like mm-hmm. um, Farmington Hills or a lot of the other areas in, in the Michigan area. Mm-hmm. We are not at that point yet. There are too many people that are not following any social distancing, that they're not following. So we have the people that are, are wearing masks and following social distancing. If there was a, uh, a mandated mask mandate, I think our world would be able to get back to work yeah. and get back into classrooms a lot quicker. Yeah. Janice, I, we, we cannot each from a coffin. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, and those comments. Uh, we've only got about a minute and a half left, uh, Professor Allen, but I want you to respond specifically to her assertion that we're just not ready anywhere for this to happen. And I think her 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 point of view there is about lack of preparedness and lack of effort. It's not a question of whether we want to or should, it's whether it makes any sense at all. Yeah, you know, I agree that um, uh, everyone shares the same goal here, right? It's the well-being of the kids, getting them back in school, and keeping uh, educators and administrators safe. And I would say that our plan is focused on exactly that. It doesn't just focus on the kids. And these risk reduction strategies we know work for adults, too. And we know this from the healthcare setting. High-risk environment, and they're doing the basics, hand-washing, mask-wearing, and ventilation and filtration. So we can have some confidence that if we put in these controls, we can help to minimize the risk. That said, there are people who have pre-existing conditions that put them at even greater risk, including advanced age. So uh, we have to create the pathways to provide them with alternate work environments, including not being at the school uh, and securing their jobs so they don't have to be in place. Having talked with a lot of school administrators about this since our plan connect in June, I can tell you this, it's not the case that all schools aren't ready and certainly None of, not all of them are. It's, it's a mix. Some have been serious about this and got their act together and are ready. The plans are in place. I've seen them. I've also talked to some school districts that are just starting to think about this now. That's too late and aren't putting in these control strategies. So, uh, you know, it really depends on the leadership, the will, the resources. Uh, and honestly, we need a national response to keep these case counts low in the community and prioritize reopening schools over things like bars and casinos and even restaurants. Uh, and we haven't seen the, the seriousness in our national response going back to January. And certainly we're not seeing it in terms of schools. It doesn't help that our leader just blurts out reopen schools. That just right. politicizes everything. The reality is we have to reopen schools when it's safe to do so and when and after these risk reduction strategies are in place in the school building. Yeah. Okay, Professor Joseph Allen, Assistant Professor of Exposure Assessment Science at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It was really great to have you here with us. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks so much, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about schools reopening in just a few weeks. We're going to talk with Elizabeth Moji, the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. John and Lola in Dearborn will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're talking this hour about what is supposed to happen in just a few weeks here in Southeast Michigan, where schools are set to reopen, and we will send our children off to institutions that we're not quite sure what they will look like. How different will they be from what we remember before school got interrupted last year, and will they be safe? Will our children be safe because of the pandemic? Will the adults who work in those buildings with our children be safe because of the pandemic? We, of course, want to hear from you this hour. Are you a parent? How are you feeling about your kids' learning environment this fall? Are you going to keep them in some sort of remote learning environment in your home? Or are you really prepared to send your kids back to school. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about the preparation and the idea of reopening schools is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moji, who is the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Dean Moji, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. Yes, great to have you. So let's start with this. What's the picture for students here in Metro Detroit? Obviously, things vary a little by district, but give us a sense of what K-12 districts are up to and what will happen when they swing their doors open in just a few weeks. Ah, yes. Well, they vary a lot. Um, different districts are doing, uh, you know, very different things, although the parameters are pretty, pretty uh, tight. Um, we'll see it, some districts doing fully remote opportunities to learn and other districts doing hybrid. Uh, in other words, they're, they're going to have some amount of in-person opportunities and some amount of uh, remote for, for children. They vary also by grade level. Um, a number of districts are trying to figure out how to make it possible to have their younger children in school uh, for all the reasons we can you know, imagine, uh, including, you know, to make it possible for parents to be able to figure out their own work lives and, and you know, the other things that they have to do in their lives. So um, it, it really does vary. I've heard, you know, the gamut, um, you know, options as well. We know, of course, Detroit Public Schools Community District is uh, giving the option for parents to send their children in person or to engage in fully remote instruction or to do some version of the two of those things. Mm. And what is the, what's at stake here in terms of the impact on our children? Is there such a significant difference between the effectiveness of in-person schooling and remote learning or is the, is the, the, the remote learning that we tried in the spring going to be so much better and so much more sort of practiced, I guess, by fall that it, it won't make that much of a difference for, for parents to decide? I believe that the remote learning will be much better, much improved. Simply having the time 
and the training to, you know, to really plan, uh, to be thoughtful about the opportunities, I think will, you know, show vast improvements. But being in person uh, just is, you know, can't be replaced by virtual learning. We can do some, you know, pretty amazing things virtually. We can get very close to great in-person instruction virtually, but children need the opportunities to interact with one another in three dimensions. And, you know, (laughs) when you're on a screen, you only see, you know, this part of a person. And there are all sorts of interactional challenges to being on the screen instead of fully in person. Mm -hmm. And we tested this actually in our own instruction at the university. So, you know, we're, we're faced with the same dilemmas about bringing people back safely, about, you know, providing opportunities for people who can't physically be on our campus. And so we um, did some testing of hybrid instruction. And, you know, it was actually great to be classroom people um, and to have that in-person experience, even though we were all sitting six feet apart, uh, even though I couldn't move around the classroom like I normally would as, as an instructor, even though we were all wearing masks, there was something to being together. And for young children to learn the different kinds of Um, social interaction uh, practices, the norms, the conventions, the strategies of, um, you know, being with other people. It's absolutely critical. Now we can do a lot. So I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that what children will experience if they stay fully remote will be, will put them, you know, light years behind their peers who come in person. But we don't want to get complacent with the idea of virtual instruction and think that it can solve everything. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, uh, Stephen. How are you? And Good. Thank how you are for you? Take, taking my call. Mm-hmm. I think that champs should be in school with a teacher. They shouldn't be at home. Homeschool is not the thing anymore. They need to get out, grow up, and learn that all champs don't listen to their parents anyway. They think they're old-fashioned and all that stuff. So they need to get out with their peers, and they need to go to school so that they can be in a curriculum and just learn how to do what they need to do. I raised six champs. (laughs) I've got doctors, lawyers. I've got people that are professional, but they live all over the world. And besides, when they grow up, they don't belong to you. They belong to the world. So, so Lola, I, I wonder what you make, though, of the, of the health risk here. And even if, even if someone agrees with what you're saying about the need for kids to be in school, what about the safety? What about this terrible pandemic? I understand that there's a pandemic, but people have to understand that you have to live your life. You were meant to be on this earth to live your life. If you go someplace and sit down, people die every day. But the whole thing is we don't know everybody that have died, but people die every day from babies to grown-ups to everybody. Yeah. But Lola, you have that's to- a... 
Yeah, that's a pretty tough. That's a pretty tough stance to take. Uh, I do appreciate the call and the and the comments. Uh, Dean Moji react to what Lola's saying there that maybe we shouldn't be so worried about uh, the risks here. Well, I I'll start by saying I agree with Lola that you know our children need to be together and to learn and to have those kinds of social interactions. Um, I I do think we have to worry about the risk. But that's why I'm um, so impressed with Professor Allen's stance and his heuristic, you know, the smart heuristic, uh, because, you know, he's right. We, we do have a model for how to engage safely, and that is in our healthcare system. Obviously, there are doctors and nurses who do get sick, but the, the vast majority have, you know, when in, uh, wearing the protective equipment, and engaging in, you know, really good uh, hand sanitizing and and clothing sanitizing and surface, although we know surface contaminants are not probably the main source of infection, um, we can we can actually engage with other people safely. We we have to be smart and thoughtful about that engagement. We can't simply, um, you know, dismiss the health risk, and we do have to protect those who are vulnerable, um, you know, those who have underlying conditions or, or all the different qualities of vulnerability. But, and by the way, including fear and anxiety. So people who are, are you know, really not comfortable being in interaction with others should not be. That, that I think that's really important, that anxiety uh, is not going to lead to great teaching and learning experiences. Mm. Mm. But I do think we can be careful and be together. Mm. Uh, I, I want to, before we get back to listeners, I want to give you a chance, Dean Moji, to talk about what's going on at the University of Michigan and other colleges. Uh, college is, of course, very different from high school. There's a lot more interaction, physical interaction. Kids, uh, students live together in dorms. Uh, classes are much larger in, in, in many cases. Are we ready to reopen the University of Michigan in the fall? Are we ready to reopen other colleges given the profound risks that still exist? I believe that we are ready because we've taken really serious precautions. So you mentioned large classes. Uh, our classes will not be large. Those will be remote. Mm -hmm. If we have a class over, you know, approximately 50, it depends on the space we have available, that class will be held fully remotely. Uh, we only will hold fully in-person classes for classes that are under 10. And those are really, you know, specialized classes, usually, uh, you know, at the doctoral level. Uh, very, very rarely do we have classes under 10. And then those classes between, you know, 11 and, and 49, roughly, will be held in that hybrid format, format where we have people um, participating remotely and then people participating in person. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. Some of those will be alternating weeks. Some will be um, large, fully remote uh, engagements and then small, very small, so under 10 in-person engagements, all masked, 
all with, you know, all of the sanitizing, um, you know, equipment and, and procedures that we will have in place. We're going to be wiping down desks. We're going to do, you know, deep cleaning every day. Um, all of those kinds of procedures are in place. And then, of course, we have uh, testing procedures as well that we'll be using and, um, you know, all sorts of um, ways of de-densifying our buildings so that the air quality, um, you know, can be maintained. Um, the biggest challenge is that people live together. Uh, so, you know, dorms are going to be uh, very carefully monitored. Um, at Michigan, our students will um, will be paired, but those will be considered family units. Mm -hmm. So that's how they'll be practicing at other places, other uh, colleges and universities around the country. They're doing things differently. Um, everyone has a different way. Again, parameters are fairly small, but, um, you know, everybody who's opening up is taking precautions. Will it be a perfect setting? Will, um, some, you know, people develop the, in the virus? Probably that's the, that's the, you know, realistic, uh, future that we have. But if people are wearing masks, washing hands, wiping down desks and uh, de-densifying spaces, maintaining physical distance, then the, the research shows that we can actually engage safely. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Elizabeth Moji, the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. We're also going to add another voice to the conversation. Kanika Littleton, who is Director for Michigan Alliance for Families, will join us to talk about how all of this affects students uh, with special needs and their families. We want to also continue to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Lisa in Gross Point Park, Mark in Macomb Township, and John in Dearborn. We'll get to you next. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you joined us. My guests are Elizabeth Moji, who's the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, and I want to welcome Kanika Littleton, Director for Michigan Alliance for Families, to the conversation. Kanika, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there, Kanika? Yes, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I, I want to start this segment with you, Kanika, and have you talk about some of the issues that we've seen crop up with remote learning and the other disruptions to education for students with special needs. Sure, Stephen. Go ahead. So some yeah. of the, uh, the, the overall challenge that we've seen with the closure of schools that happened abruptly in March was that, you know, a, a lot of students missed out on learning. So the Northwest Evaluation Association, or NWEA, projected that students would retain approximately 50% of their math content and 70% of their reading content due to the health emergency. 
And we know that, that those numbers are likely higher for students uh, with disabilities. Um, so all students are, are, are starting off this school year with a deficit, but that deficit will probably be significantly higher for students with disabilities. So we need to think about how districts are going to address the foregoing learning for students um, and look at the need for recovery services, which is really just thinking about the added impact of COVID-19 and what role that plays for the learning of students with disabilities. Students with disabilities, mm. and and there are some significant differences for these students in terms of what they are able to get from in-person learning than what they are able to get with remote learning. Absolutely, absolutely. So, for our students in particular, and when I say our students, I'm talking about our students with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of them, most students with IEPs are educated in the general education classroom for most of their day. But these students with more significant needs, such as intensive individualized instruction and those who need related services like occupational therapy, you know, physical therapy or speech therapy, they might have trouble fully accessing that adequate support um, through remote learning. So that can lead to a significant de- decrease in learning as well as a uh, decrease in qu- acquiring their skills, which are I- outlined in their individualized education program or IEP. So that results in even more devastating, you know, it can be even more devastating for students of color with disabilities or those who are in rural communities who attend schools with less resources or have parents who, you know, they work and they can't fully commit to supporting learning at home. Mm. So um, how do you see things playing out in various districts throughout the state this fall for students with special needs? We've had some time now to see how that worked in the spring are we going to do better by them this fall when schools reopen? You know, I I have to remain optimistic. One of the things um, that gives me hope is that, you know, students or teachers and educators in schools really learned a lot about how to mobilize quickly when school just completely shut down. So they were able to put things in place, which, you know, can be, would be beneficial for all students as well as, understand and really see the needs of how remote learning will affect students with disabilities. You know, some of our students are not able to sit through a Zoom meeting or, you know, they might have sensory issues where they can't look at a computer screen all day. So really thinking about the complex needs of our students and then putting some supports in place. Um, You know, our students really, a lot of our students with significant needs benefit from in-person, hands-on instruction, and what we're seeing right now is that some schools are opening the school up to those students with significant challenges while starting the school year off with remote learning for other students. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're doing that is because, you know, the individualized instruction and the social interaction and, and all of that is really important for students with significant needs. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Mark in Macomb Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, thanks for having me on. I sure. really appreciate it. Sure. Uh, the bottom line is we should have taken this virus and the coronavirus so much more seriously in February, March, and April and made the hard, hard choices that we needed to make back then and not open the country up as soon as we did. All the Trumpledites out there 
the only reason your kids are not going to school today or going to go to school in the fall is because of the buffoon we have in Washington, D.C., in the White House right now. I'm begging everybody out there that's listening, please vote in November. Maybe, maybe we can keep the death toll under 300,000. So, uh, Mark, right I, I appreciate the the call and and the comments and and I think you know the preparedness for all of this is one of the the really strong narratives about how all this has has played out. Um, Elizabeth Moji, we've got just about a minute and a half left, but I want to give you a chance to talk about sort of big picture preparedness and how ready we are for, for all of this happening in the fall. Well, I think that we are ready. I think there are going to be challenges along the way. I, um, I think I, I really appreciated Kanika's comments about um, the importance of really focusing on our children who do have specialized learning needs and thinking about thinking strategically about who we might um, for whom we might open schools, um, you know, children who who need to learn uh, in particular ways might need the face to face kind of instruction more. And I see that districts are really taking that into account. They're thinking carefully about how to support IEPs. Uh, Kinnika's right, that did not happen in the winter because everyone was scrambling. So I think we're going to see some really strategic differences um, based on the plans that I've seen and the guidance that came from the state. Hmm. Okay. Elizabeth Moji, Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for coming by. Thank you. Also, Kanika Littleton, Director uh, for Michigan Alliance for Families. It was really great to have you here for this conversation as well. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow for a conversation about the state of our country's healthcare system and telemedicine. Is it here to stay? We're going to talk with some experts to find out. We'll also talk about the marijuana industry in Michigan and why it is booming in the age of COVID-19. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.